Well, welcome to Outdoors. I'm Brian, and this morning I'm excited for our guest, Tammy Asars. Tammy has authored books including Hiking the Wonderland Trail and Hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, Washington, and many others. My wife and I were fortunate enough to go backpacking in the Cascades a few seasons back with Tammy. Her vast experience in through hiking and enthusiasm for photography and writing make her a great source of inspiration and information in pursuing your own trail adventures. Tammy, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. You recently finished the um, Arizona Trail. Yep. And uh, the Continental Divide Trail last last season. Yep. And before we get into that, I just had some some background questions for you. So how did you get engaged in hiking and uh, doing longer through hikes? That's a, that's a great question. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so I'm a third generation Washingtonian and have been hiking and backpacking essentially since I was born uh, and just love it. And, you know, the more I, I found the longer distances and the more I go, the more I feel, um, I don't know what the exact right way to put this is, but I feel more connected to the wild places maybe. So it started back in the day. So back in college, there was a lot of stress and a lot of stuff going on. And I would just haul my college books to the top of any peak I could find and sit there and study. And I found that to be a much more pleasant environment than libraries or other places, you know, and then as time went on, you know, I got involved in the corporate world and things got busy and crazy in life. And I just kept turning to the mountains for solace and peace as so many do. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the, the drive to get out there and get further and see more and do more, uh, just sort of melded into my heart through, through time. And, um, it's really, uh, through hiking is really a fantastic experience if you can take the time to do it, which is usually the biggest challenge for most people, but you get to see how much untouched land there is in the United States. That was probably the most shocking thing to me in all the through hiking I've done. So how did you get started uh, writing guidebooks? I mean, you've, you've done so many different trails. It was, was a part of it, um, just trying to keep track of all the things you've done and cement them into your memory. Like, how, how did you get started doing that? Yeah. So I was working for REI. Uh, I had been with REI for about nine years and I was teaching um, outdoor classes and I was also a guide for REI Adventures Northern Loop Trail in Mount Rainier. And um, I started teaching a Hiking the Wonderland Trail class there. And it was a free class. And over the years that I taught it, it got larger and larger and larger. And my handout got bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon I was standing at a copier making all of this paper thinking, I just need to write a book. This is, you know, this information people need. So, uh, so that's how it started. So I started writing this book and, um, you know, I kind of have a history of writing anyway. When I was uh, in sixth grade, I had a column in my local newspaper. Um, you know, I've, I've done some things with poetry and won some awards and all that. So it wasn't like it was a foreign thing. Plus when I was with REI, I was doing a lot of writing for their community planning and doing a lot of the calendar writing and write-ups for different vendors and things like that. So it was all just a really natural segue and a great fit. And it, it melded my two loves, my uh, outdoor passion and also uh, my love for writing. So I wrote this book and then I set, set out to find a publisher and um, had about a three month waiting period from submitting manuscripts and you know, a little bit of a nail bite. And um, 
I had relationships in Mountaineers books, my work at REI and was able to uh, sync up beautifully with them and got offered a book deal. So Hiking the Wonderland Trail was my very first book. Um, it was a blast to write. It was, it's, yeah, there it is. <laughs> it was even, uh, it, you know, it's even more fun to talk to people about it because, um, you know, like a lot of people consider it sort of the Wonderland Trail Bible, so to speak. Uh, and and I also have a guidebook app um, for the Wonderland Trail uh, as well. So the app um, pretty much in, in real time tells you where you are along the trail, where the next water sources are, you know, those kinds of things too. So it's expanded even beyond that. Um, but since then, uh, I've really enjoyed writing so much that I've started to write more. So I have um, a couple day hiking books out on Goat Rocks and Mount Adams. I have... Uh, uh, and day hiking Mount Rainier, and I have hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, Washington, of course, um, and that is a through hiker or a section hiker's guide to all of Washington State. Awesome! I, I can just imagine you by the copy machine with all these stacks of papers. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and I, I have a similar experience. Yeah, I, I love to draw. You know, I draw pictures for, for illustrations from these experiences, so I remember them better. And I got to the point recently where my my pencil is shorter than the stack of drawings that I have about mountain biking. So I'm like, I guess I'm going to do a mountain biking book now. <laughs> awesome. Did I read you're doing a mountain biking guide as well? Uh, yeah, it's, it's more about uh, trail access and um, and just the communities involved in the mountain biking area, mostly in the Bozeman area. But I want to talk about the sport in general, like what's the difference between cross country, trail riding, enduro, downhill, all these different disciplines and where you can talk to people and learn more about it. Starting in, the, in this region, but a lot of this stuff will be general information. I think it'll be useful for a lot of people yeah. on maintenance and safety and things like that. And all, all illustrated and animated. So fun stuff. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, we, um, you know, over the course of doing these through hikes, you see a lot of people that are doing like the Great Divide Trail and, mm -hmm. and uh, the Arizona Trail, actually, you can do on a bike, you have to, of course, avoid the wilderness areas and all these, but uh, a lot of bike packers, this is becoming, mm -hmm. you know, more and more of a common thing. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a lot of, we have a lot of fun when we all get together, because everybody's kind of going for the same goal, although the bikers get there a little faster right. than we do. <laughs> so let's talk about the Arizona Trail. Um, so what, what is the Arizona Trail? How long is it? Where does it start? And where does it end? So it was uh, 800 miles. It starts uh, on the Mexico-Arizona border, and it goes all the way to Utah. So it goes entirely through the state of Arizona. And it was a dream of, uh, I believe he was a school teacher um, who was just really passionate. He lived in Flagstaff. His name was Dale. And he just started to think, how could he showcase the diversity of Arizona? And to be honest with you, um, you know, I've, I've done quite a few through hikes now. Uh, and I was more or less looking for something for spring, um, just kind of, you know, to shake the winter blues. And I was like, I love desert hiking. It's kind of you know, been something that over time I've really gotten used to. And so I was like, oh, I should go, you know, I should go hike the Arizona trail, but I didn't really do uh, a ton of research on it before I did it. Um, so, you know, last year I did the, the Continental Divide trail and that's almost, uh, you know, it's 3000 miles. Um, so this one was 800. So as silly as it sounds, it sounded, it was a month and a half. It's like, okay, well, this is kind of a short trail, you know, I'll just throw all my gear in and go and see what it has to hold. Um, 
boy, was I ever schooled. (laughs) I thought it was going to be a long, flat, cactus, you know, hot trail. Oh, no, it was not. It climbs up all these big mountain ranges and your elevation is high through a lot of it. I mean, you're 9,000 feet. Um, and then you're climbing these giant peaks and you're dropping down the other side. And there's, there was a day when I think it was like 7,000 feet cumulative elevation gain and even more of loss with a big pack, you know, and, um, no matter how light you get that pack, it's always a big pack. (laughs) It's just what I've learned. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's absolutely stunning. The diversity in that state is, is out of this world. You do pass some of the cactusy type things, but a lot of it's mountain. Um, we got, uh, I think it was the second or third week in eight inches of snow and a complete crazy whiteout storm. Uh, we didn't know where the trail was, had to navigate off an app, uh, to get down off this big peak. And, uh, I mean, it was three days of ice cold, frigid temperatures, freezing feet, you know, challenging navigation, certainly was not prepared for that. Thankfully, I, I always bring rain gear and warm clothes, but, you know, didn't see that coming with Arizona. I thought I was going to the desert and hot weather. Right. Um, so that was, that was shocking. And then it's kind of a tale of, of two trails in a way where the Southern half is just massive amount of mountains. And if, if you do it in the spring, most people do it in, um, you know, like March and April timeframe. So you can still at those 9,000 foot levels still have a lot of snow. Um, but when you start off, you get hit with these huge mountain ranges. So it's when you're in the worst shape and when you're, you know, you're kind of getting used to your trail legs and all that, and you're climbing up and over these huge mountain ranges. And I would say for the first 400 miles, we'll say it's these big, huge mountain ranges. And then you get to, these little towns called Pine and Payson, Arizona, you cross this highway, the left is Pine to the right is Payson. And you continue straight ahead on this and you get to what's called the Mogollon and forgive me, Arizonians, if I'm saying that wrong. Um, It looks like Mogollon, but that's not how you say it. Uh, It's this rim, it's this big mesa and it's all gorgeous pine forest, but it's flat. So again, didn't see that coming. Um, Teeming with elk, just crazy. And then it's pretty much flat until you get to the Grand Canyon. And then you drop down into the canyon. Stunning, of course, for those who've who've been there. Uh, And then you climb out the other side, the North Rim. And when you get to the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, it's like you've entered this other world entirely. It's, It's so beautiful and unusual. And the biggest surprise to me on that North Rim was that there are bison. Wow. Uh, Didn't, expect that in Arizona. I kind of thought that was a Yellowstone thing, (laughs) but uh, yeah, just really, really unique ecosystem. We saw a wolf um, also didn't know that Arizona had had a population of wolves um, and just saw some really cool stuff. Like it's just such, such an interesting adventure and so unexpected in so many ways. Wow. What a way to uh, dust off the cobwebs, huh? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah, that first day we got about nine miles in and I looked at my hiking partner and I said, I am exhausted. <laughs> Let's camp soon. I mean, you know, we were pushing, we did, you know, most, most of our days were 20 plus, um, you know, somewhere in 20 to 25 mile days. But that first day 
I just couldn't believe the elevation gain. It was, you know, that it's a hard trail when in the first mile you see a guy who's turning back, he was coming the wrong way. And we're like, Hey, the trail goes that way. He's like, yeah, I overpacked. I can't do this. I was like, Oh, what are we in for? Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So, so were you doing like 12, um, you know, seven to seven or what was your, what were your days like? Uh, you mean time-wise? Time-wise, yeah. Yeah. Oh, we were getting up really early. The alarm would go off at about 4.20. And by the time we got um, camp broken down and everything, we'd be on trail by about uh, five, sometimes a little earlier. And off the get-go, we were doing 12 to 13-hour days. Um, and I was trying to journal it and, you know, just keep notes for myself. And by the end of the night, I'd be trying to write and my my brain is not working and my you know, my pen doesn't want to go anymore because my hand's tired. And I'm just like, what am I doing? I can remember all this. <laughs> Why am I journaling? Ah. But um, I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad I kept some notes on it because it was such a great experience. I want to remember all the little things too. Mm -hmm. And I look back on all the, on all the writing I've done on the other trails sometimes. And, you know, where was that lake or, or who are those people we passed and we met that one particular day or, you know, and so it's kind of fun to reread all that stuff. Yeah. What what sort of things do you think are going to stand out years from now as being the most memorable parts of it? There, boy, um, I, it, it was 800 miles. It was, um, it was six weeks, but it went by in the blink of an eye. I mean, we saw so much stuff in six weeks. It was, it was, it was just unimaginable beauty. I mean, there were so many, you know, you get up, um, like even dropping down into Flagstaff, there's this really pretty Canyon with all these big, huge rocks. And we were coming through there early in the morning. It was ice cold, so cold, you know, you could see your breath. It was in the twenties. Um, and I looked over at this Canyon and the sun was coming up and it was just creeping down this Canyon wall of stunning, weird, bulbous, rock of all sorts of, you know, volcanic formation. And I just stood there and looked at that for a second. And I thought, I am so lucky to be here. And it was a, it was a weird feeling because I was exhausted. I was feeling pretty tired by that point. You know, my body could definitely, we were going to take a zero in Flagstaff. It was the only zero we took on the trail. Uh, and, but, but at the same time, it was like, I need to stop and just study this rock and watch the sun drop on this rock for a minute, because I don't want, you know, I don't know if I'll pass this way again. And I want to see that. And so there are just a bunch of little moments like that. Um, I was cold for a lot of the trail. And so, you know, it was a good lesson to me about um, preparedness. I mean, I, I, I was prepared. I had, you know, I had a puffy and I had rain gear and I had long sleeve shirt and hat and all that. But, um, but, but I was, I was really expecting the weather to be much warmer than it was. And so every day, every day I was so bundled up. Um, but we saw mining ruins, just really cool infrastructure, which sounds kind of crazy because it wasn't the natural world, but it was really neat to see the human history too. Hmm. So we saw that um, Aspens, who knew in Arizona, Aspen trees, like just gorgeous. And that's right in those Aspens is where we saw that wolf. And when we saw that, it was like, that was a wolf. That was very odd. That, that was not a coyote. That was a wolf, you know, and we, um, my hiking partners from Montana, and obviously he's very adept in, in coyotes versus wolves. And, uh, and so we both saw it and we both were like, that 
could it be a wolf here? And then we ran into some fish and wildlife guys who said that there was a confirmed sighting recently in that area. So we were like, okay, we're not completely crazy. Um, one of the really cool things I saw on the trail, I love birding. Um, I've always wanted to see a night jar, which is a sm small bird and they sit kind of in little um, divots or canyons and they, they lay there at night and they look up at the sky because they can see the horizon and they look for moths and things to eat. And they're, they're kind of a, a friendly bird, if you will, in that they're not super spooky. So a lot of times there's pictures of people getting, you know, scooching up kind of close to them and getting their picture with them and stuff. Um, but we were walking along in the dark of headlamps in the very early morning and saw these two red eyes. And first we thought it was a snake, but then the closer we got, we realized it was this beautiful bird and it was just its coloration was sort of mottled and it blended so well with the rock that if its eyes hadn't been reflecting, you would have walked right by it. But because it's, it had those beautiful red eyes, we could you know, we could get a really clear vision as we got closer of what it was. So it's just stuff like that. It was just really remarkable um, trail. And I have so many visual images in my mind from it. You know, I guess maybe because it's fresh, it's also, you know, because I, I just got off the trail two weeks ago. So um, yeah, it was, it was quite the experience. I highly recommend it if anybody can take some time off or just section hike it even. It's worth seeing for sure. Yeah, I had no idea that there's that much diversity, you know, in the state. <laughs> yeah, well, and they have, you know, the hardest part of it is is the water situation, of course, because it's an arid climate. Uh, but they have this really cool thing in this one section. I think it, it, there's it's it's divided into passages. There's 43 passages, and I can't remember which passage. Passage. I want to say it's 15 or 16, but they have funded this thing called a rain barrel, a rain catching barrel. And it's this massive thing sitting on the very top of a peak right when you need it. And, and water comes into the top and somehow it has this really neat roof on it where water goes in, but it's not allowed to evaporate. And it sits in this huge tank and on the outside of it is a spigot and it's all just rainwater. So you just go up and you turn the spigot on and water comes out and it's like on the top of this mountain, it's such a neat thing. And it's like, okay, so how do we get more of those on this trail? Cause that was awesome. Instead of having to filter, you know, there's a lot of filtering of mucky cow water. You have to be prepared for that. Um, have a, have a good filter and maybe even have those who are a little wary of that may want to treat it also with like a chemical treatment, but we didn't, we just filtered and didn't have any knock on something quickly problems at least yet. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're in the cascades, like the system, when we were hiking with you was like that catered in just this, the squeeze bag, which yeah. did you have to use like more of like a, a pump filter or more robust system? No, use the same one. Um, yeah, no, and you know, you just have to be careful that nothing's leaking, that you're not cross-contaminating in any way by accident, um, because the water is, um, it's, be it's beautiful because it's water. Let's put it that way. You know, you're happy to have it, but you get up to it and you're filtering from what's called a wildlife tank, which is put there by fish and wildlife to try to give like the natural critters um, that are found there water and you get there and there's birds everywhere and there's rabbits everywhere and there you know and 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 obviously the elk drink it uh you can see their droppings and things and so you go up and you're drinking you are an animal just like they are and you are drinking from the wildlife tank um but there's often a layer of algae and dead moths everywhere and you can't see the bottom or it's it's green and you gotta just go with it, you know, and if you filter it and it looks like some, there was at least one that looked like tea, 
you know, or ginger ale when you were done filtering, but it doesn't taste horrible. And it's nothing that like a little hydration tablet can't fix mm. with flavor. So, um, you know, if you have to do that, we did bring, you know, flavor flavored stuff with us and some electrolyte replacement, that kind of thing, just to give, give it a little, give us maybe a little more mental accomplishment over the water if we needed it. Yeah. Um, cause it, it was, you know, it, you do kind of think about like, what is this what am I drinking here? But most of it was clear, honestly, um, once it was filtered. So it was okay. But that rain tank was like just amazing because clear water, clear rainwater coming out of a spigot was like, it was so beautiful in the middle of this dry desert at the top of this peak. <laughs> Heaven's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So let's move a little farther what I guess east to continental divide. Yeah. Um, so that you started that last summer, and that was a <clears throat> that's a long track. How how far is the continental divide trail? Where does that one start? Where does that one end? And what was your plan on that one? Yeah. So that one starts at the boot hill of New Mexico, and it goes all the way up to uh, Glacier National Park in Montana. So it crosses New Mexico and Colorado and Wyoming, and then it hits, it flirts with the Idaho-Montana border for a while, and then um, ends up in Montana. So as you know, it was, it was COVID year last year, so we were very sensitive to that and trying to, to do our best to not utilize town resources as much um, whenever possible, but um, it was absolutely stunning. We had, I mean, obviously very few people on the trail, but we really felt like being on the trail was one of the safest places we could be, um, you know, just simply because we were social distancing in so many ways. Um, but we started and um, and started in April uh, towards the middle to, to late part of April and ended September 18th um, up at the uh, Canadian border, the Montana-Canada border. And uh, once again, just the trail community is like, um, it, it's, so the trail crosses through several towns and, um, you know, people were, the people of the towns were so gracious and they are so happy to see hikers. Um, and a lot of those small town communities, they rely on hikers for everything for, you know, and in a, in a tough year, they were just they were so kind when we, when we did have to go into a town or, or go to a post office or something, um, we were real sensitive to it, but again, the people were so welcoming and, um, yeah, it was, it was a stunning, just a stunning trail. It's very, uh, compared to like the Pacific crest, it's very isolated there. The end, there's not always a trail. <laughs> so that was another shocker. Um, sometimes there is a, a trail post, that you're following and you go from one to the next. And sometimes you're following a post and you think you're going in a straight line. Okay. This must be the trail. Cause I saw a post that said CDT and you, um, you start walking and then the next post is way up on the hill. And so you have to kind of cross country up to it. And, um, so there's some of that, some of it went like through grassy marshes and meadows where your, like your feet are getting completely soaked and, um, you know, cause it was early season and the snow melt had just come off. So normally what might've been a dry trail was really wet. Um, and trying to navigate, we just used, um, Atlas guides and gut hooks apps to get through some of those areas when it was really tough navigation and navigating was a bit of, 
I wouldn't say a challenge. I mean, we had the app, so we were always, we always knew where we were, but we did get off trail a few times. And especially if you end up talking and you're not watching where you're going. Uh, we had one time where we were a mile and a half off and it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> we are not on trail. I don't know where we are, but we are not on trail. So, you know, stuff like that. But it was, um, boy, it was beautiful. The All the, the ridge lines and areas you get to where you look over this vast landscape of just nothingness was so shocking to me. I kept thinking, okay, we're going to hop up on this ridge and then we'll see a town in the distance or, you know, and you get up there and there'd be some reservoir and no lights at night, um, just darkness as far as the eye could see. And it was so strange um, to see that kind of land. I just had no idea we had that much open space in this country. I guess coming from, you know, where we mo most of us live in populated areas, it's easy to think that maybe it's, you know, the whole the whole place is like that, but it's just not. And so you see that with the Continental Divide Trail, you really get that sense. Hmm. We did a short section in the Lion's Head Mountains, you know, just between Idaho and um, kind of Yellowstone area, um, mountain biking last summer as a loop. And uh, man, you really get up in some mountains even there. I could just imagine a lot of that. And in the Colorado, even larger, larger peaks and just a lot of high country traversing up and down and, you know, through all these ecosystems. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it was really beautiful. And we kept thinking, you know, okay, we're getting into the Wind River Range in Wyoming and we're, you know, we're getting up towards, you know, Bob Marshall and all that. And we're getting into big, big grizzly habitat. And so, you know, we had our bear spray and all that. And we were so prepared and we were like, okay, yeah, everybody sees grizzlies. We're going to see them when we get up there. But shockingly, we saw five bears. And the most amazing thing was they were all in New Mexico. Really? <laughs> yeah, no grizzlies, all black bears. But still, it was who would have thought Northern New Mexico had that many bears? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really cool to see that. But um, I think it was hunting season when we got up towards um, those areas. So they were probably making themselves a bit scarce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I don't think you can, not sure. I don't think you can hunt grizzlies, but, you know, gunshots will scare any number of, of animals, even if they're hunting deer or elk or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So my dad worked on the section of the Continental Divide Trail in the, the early 90s, kind of in, in the Beaverhead and uh, I think Gravelly Range, maybe I'm probably getting that wrong. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah it sounds like, you know, then it was really rugged and coming together and it sounds like it still is in some parts. Oh, <laughs> very, yeah. Very it less, less much, is it much less travel than the PCT? Is it just much more remote than that? I think so. But, you know, my experience was so unique because we did it in COVID year and there's just, I mean, it was, we almost had the whole place to ourselves in so many ways. And, you know, what stands out to me too, is the people I, I had mentioned just the kindness and warmth of the people in these small towns and, you know, coming from a, a little more populated area and about 30 miles outside of Seattle, um, we have lovely people that live here too, but you don't have that sort of sense of isolation. So when they see people, they want to take you home and give you everything that they have. And, you know, one particular thing stands out to me. We were walking, we had a fire reroute up by um, uh, Lador, Idaho. Um, and in some of the areas there, there had, there was an active fire situation going on. So we were walking this forest road and we ended up kind of back on this rustic forest road where not a lot of people went we're walking along and and 
it was late in the day and I was getting in my own head about my feet hurting and getting tired. And I was trying to like get my mind set into somewhere else, but the aches and pains. So I, uh, I started singing and, um, I, I wasn't thinking necessarily anyone was around, but I was singing really loudly. And this guy comes out of his cabin and he goes, Oh, I thought I heard flies. I'm like, well, that's, awesome. <laughs> I guess I have a lovely voice, <laughs> but, but anyway, he was like, Oh, what are you, you know, what are you guys doing? Are you hiking? Come on in. He shows us around this cabin that was built in the late thirties, early forties by his father-in-law and offers us iced tea. And he doesn't have, you know, much to his name. The cabin doesn't have electricity. He's up there bucking hay and he's, he's living on the land and he is just the nicest guy. And, you know, you're welcome to stay and all this kind of stuff. And he had this little cot in the corner of this rustic cabin, you know, that was completely off grid and, and just, I mean, gave us his, whatever he had, he had food, he, you know, do you guys want to, you know, do you guys want, want this? And do you want that? And, and, um, you know, visited with us and shared his, his dream for this cabin and what he was going to, it was just, it was, you know, it was moments like that where, you you really makes you really think about humanity in a different way coming from a larger city where you know you have so many problems with crowding and all that and then you get out and you see these people who are just salt of the earth kind um would give you their shirt off their backs if you asked for it. I mean, they're just so nice. And, and it was just, uh, I came back with a renewed sense of we need to all help each other a little bit more and, and just show a little more kindness and, and, you know, extend that same sense of hospitality, no matter how big your location or how crowded your spaces are, you know, and, uh, I think maybe that's part of the through hiking thing that draws me into, is it just, takes you away from the world you're in and puts you into a completely different place. There was another time we were, we were hiking through this remote area and this guy on this, in this truck comes by, he's probably in his seventies and he's building a cabin and he's like, Oh, I normally have cookies, but I have this bag of cherries. And he reaches out and just gives us this bag of cherries, you know, and we're not a charity. We're just people hiking. And it was amazing to see that kind of kindness just throughout the entire trail. I mean, everywhere we went, we had that. We had never once had anybody say, and, you know, we were sensitive to, to approaching anyone or saying anything, of course, because of COVID. We just certainly didn't want, um, you know, any ill will, uh, if so to speak, with considering the pandemic. But, um, but people were just so gracious, and it was really lovely to see that. Did you encounter many other hikers along the way on that trip? A handful. I mean, probably the entire time we saw about 30, which is crazy when you think about how many are hiking the PCT. You know, when I did the PCT in 2016, there was like a herd of us that started at the border and, you know, and every day you'd meet new people and it was super social. This was not like that at all. I mean, our, we'd have days where we wouldn't see another human. I mean, it was just days and um, it was almost an eerie feeling because it's like, the apocalypse could have happened and we were the last people here and we wouldn't have known it. <laughs> you know, there's evidence of people being here at one point. I mean, I see tire tracks and, you know, maybe a, a cut tree here and there, but it, there was just no one around. It was, it was really crazy. It was almost like going back in time mm -hmm. in a way. 
Um, yeah, that just, can be really surreal when you're out just even a, a few days in that sort of like remote wilderness and then coming back to reality always seems to me as such a culture shock. Yeah. You know, and then as soon as you read the newspapers about these horrible things going on, like put me back. <laughs> I know, totally. I, I know we, I mean, for all we knew by the time we got back, the pandemic could have been over and kids all going back to school. And we just had no idea what was happening in the world. And I guess, you know, that's also one of the draws that people really like about through hiking is there's, you know, there's that sense of like, I don't know, being self-sustaining and not having uh, a lot of information coming at you all the time. You can just kind of, you know, your biggest worry is where's your next water source and how far is it to the next X, Y, Z and, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it's just, um, it really helps, I think, the human spirit. It, at least I can speak for myself. It, it really helps. I kind of call it like soul shampoo or soul salve where you're, you, you just, you need that. And I think we've forgotten a little bit, um, in our daily lives, you know, the way our society is structured and it has to be in some senses, you know, we all have to work. We all have to put food on our, on our table and we're not anymore. We're not going out and, and, you know, necessarily farming. I mean, many are still, but there's a lot of us that are living in cities and, you know, having to deal with email and phone calls and, and things that are happening all the time that are constant noise and, and you're blocking and tackling problems all day long that are, you know, that have consequences if you don't, if you don't take care of them, you know, because you, you need to continue to keep a good presence or, or do your job or, you know, do your job well. And, um, and those are all good, good things. And, you know, but those are the skills we have. And I think those are the skills now that most people have sharpened and honed in on because it's what you need. But when you kind of take yourself out of that setting and you put yourself back into just something so simplistic and primitive to be looking for water or to be watching clouds and is that one going to bring us a storm or is that, you know, it, it kind of gets you back in, um, in, I guess maybe the heart and soul of a human being what we truly, truly need in our lives. We had a backpack on our backs that we carried for five months that was everything we needed, you know? And then we go home and we're like, why do we have all this stuff? <laughs> what, what are we doing with all this stuff? You know, um, it, it's just a different way of thinking. And it's, I think it's really healthy for folks to get outside and, and kind of get back into that, no matter how short your trip is or how long, just to have that like just wonderful peace again and, and quietness and to kind of center yourself a little. Yeah. In my last um, podcast I was talking with Hannah Brattenroot about basically the healing brain restorative powers of nature. And she said that uh, as human beings, our neurology, we're wired for that, you yeah. know, as endurance animals to search, to keep pushing through those physical and mental barriers in an endurance fashion in nature to find food, to find shelter, to find sustenance. So that, you know, makes me think a lot of these like longer endurance, um, you know, through hikes or, or, or longer foot hikes or longer bike rides, that sort of thing gets us back into that space again. Yeah. I think it's something that we don't experience very much. And so much of our wiring is geared that way. It's something that feels like, you know, at least for me, a really important restorative part to detach from all this technology and stuff to, to have some more balance and, and restoration that way. Yeah. And it makes you question what's healthy. 
you know, because you're out there and you're, you're pushing yourself physically every single day. I mean, you're doing a marathon a day, you know, we were doing, we did, we had one day, I think we did 38 miles. Um, and yeah, which is a really big day, but you're pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's like, at some point you're stretching your body out and you're thinking, is this even that healthy? But then mentally it is. And, and it's like, and, and you come off these trails feeling, um, and you're in better shape than you've ever been. And you're just so sort of mentally cleansed and, um, you know, but then you get back to the other part of it. And it's like, I don't know if, cause you do need recovery time too. So there's a physical and mental part of it. And both are, um, both are interesting thoughts to consider what really truly is, is health. Um, you know, is, is this the mental part that I'm experiencing out here healthy? Cause then you come home and you have to readjust to how society is and how life is and how social media is. And, you know, you get hit with more negative stuff. And um, so, but yeah. And then the physical part is definitely a, yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. Puts one's body to the test. Yeah. Well, with, with all these big tri- trips that you recently done, um, what's next for Tammy? Are, are you writing a new book or what are you up to? I am actually writing a, a new book, um, not about the through hiking um, that I've just done, but I am writing a fall hiking guide for the Northwest. So it's going to be all the best places for those leaf peepers. So I'm in the process of doing that right now. Um, as far as hiking goes, I'm excited to stick around my backyard this summer. I've been gone on trails for the last five years during summer and the Northwest is such a gorgeous place. Uh, in the summertime. So I'm looking forward to doing some cross country routes locally here in the Alpine Lakes wilderness uh, and just getting up into the mountains and seeing some of the places I I haven't been. And um, I've been studying and pouring over maps, trying to figure out the best pathways to get into some of these high mountain lakes uh, and see see what's there get, get better views. And it might be a scratchy bushwhack, but I'm excited to try it out. So that's kind of what's on deck for me. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you know, the cascades of just lifetimes of possibilities, Yeah. like tip of the iceberg, regardless of how much experience you have in there, there's always so much more. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, and I look at these maps and I'm like, Oh, there's no trail to that lake, but I guarantee that someone's been there at some point. So maybe I can find one. And I'm looking at the topo lines, trying to figure out the best, best way to get in there or to do some sort of loop or, um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm going to go exploring, I think. Nice. That sounds awesome. I, this is my first year in 20 years. I haven't been back in the fall in the Northwest. Oh, so I'm, I'm missing it too. I'm going over yeah. For some wild Northwest, uh, you know, glaciers and peaks and granite and all that. (laughs) Well, maybe I can twist your arm and do a backpacking trip at some point. There we go. Yeah, cool. Well, Tammy, where can people uh, follow you and learn more about uh, your books and your adventures? Um, They can hit my website. It's Tammy, T-A-M-I, and then my last name, Asars, A-S-A-R-S dot com. And that will have the most current information there on um, my books and um, my speaking engagements, which unfortunately right now are a little limited with the COVID world we live in, but I'm hoping to get back out and and, uh, continue educating folks about the great trails and places that I've been. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me. It was a a pleasure. Check out thelastbestbike.com for a new book coming out in the summer of 2021. Until next time, happy trails.